Hi there. Can you hear me all right? Yes, Shannon. Thank you. Thanks so much for your service. And thanks, everyone, for being here. Welcome to the newcomers. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, to be honest, when Marion asked me a few weeks ago if I'd be open to speaking, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. You want me to talk? Um, and uh, even getting ready in the last few hours, I've just been like, am I really doing this? Um, but I'll just trust that you will. <laughs> I will be on this ride with me and um, that I have something to offer and share to at least someone on this plane. <laughs> um, so today is day 385 for you, marijuana for me, so a little over a year, about three weeks over a year. Um, and that is amazing and a miracle and definitely thanks to everyone on these phone lines. But I'll back up a bit. <laughs> um, I'm going to try and tell this in a linear way, although we'll see how that goes. Um, so I uh, come from a family uh, where both my parents uh, smoke pot regularly. And I know that my mom uh, used some when she was pregnant with me. Um, and when I was little, um, and other parts of that I've just kind of put together as an adult, but it, it definitely was a part of my childhood, even though it wasn't totally out in the open, probably a bit hush-hush, but um, now that my parents are retired, they both smoke daily, and my brother smokes uh, every day as well, so... I don't live near my family. I live actually across the country from my family, my birth family. But um, that is definitely a part of our family culture, um, as well as some extended family that smokes too. Um, so kind of fast forwarding to when I started smoking pot, uh, my family made a couple uh, big moves when I was a kid. I grew up mostly in Southern California, and uh, when I was 10, we moved to Connecticut for my dad's work, um, which meant leaving uh, my entire extended family and a lot of cousins. Dad comes from a big family, so leaving all that behind and, and being in more of a nuclear, isolated family unit of just my brother and my parents and myself. Um, and then after being in Connecticut for around three years, we made another major move so that when I was 13 and uh, December of my eighth grade year, we were we moved to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which, uh, you know, I kind of had this vision that I moved to Sioux Falls and I had, you know, some, like, social issues in Connecticut because the kids were really, for lack of a better word, stuck up in not very kind, although I'd like slowly carved out my own little group of friends that I felt comfortable with after three years. Um, and then I said goodbye to them and moved to Sioux Falls, South Dakota and was like, cool. I, I kind of had this like footloose vision of me moving to town and being like the new cool kid and impressing everyone. Um, but then I got to South Dakota 
um, and just realized I didn't even understand the cultural expectations there, what would, would impress people, because it was so different than anything I had known. Um, yeah, I would not recommend moving <laughs> your child in the middle of eighth grade. It's a rough time to start a new school because everyone was really well-established in their social circles. And uh, although I made a couple of good friends, I also uh, just really struggled socially. And I'd say that my self-esteem was already kind of teetering from moving to Connecticut and dealing with being bullied and teased there. And then moving to South Dakota didn't do anything positive for that. Um, my closest friend was my my mom's cousin or my mom's niece's uh, daughter who lived about four hours away in Minnesota, and I would see her every couple months. And I kept a notebook, and in the notebook I would uh, write down how many hours, minutes, days, and it was till we would see each other again. So I was really lonely. And uh, later on, like around my freshman year of high school, I also became pretty emotional. Um, and it really seemed like that uh, level of rage that I had. I have a, a friend of mine who described her, like, you know, being raised female as like, I was a really good kid. And then one day when I was a teenager, I just woke up and started screaming and didn't stop. And although that wasn't necessarily the case, I definitely had a, a real rage within me for many reasons. Um, and it really did feel like it was too much emotion or too much feeling, raw feeling in a, you know, kind of very stereotypical middle class family where you try to avoid conflict and confrontation at all costs. And I was just this, like, force of uncontrollable emotions that it felt like I was going to, like, ruin my family or, you know, just kind of you know, the world around me couldn't handle it. I definitely felt that way at school, too. Um, and so around the end of my eighth grade year, I I spoke up for the first time with this girl who I was close with who was pretty verbally abusive, and she was, like, snapping at me for not doing it right and, you know, didn't make it a very fun experience and I didn't get high. And then maybe towards the end of the summer before my freshman year, I smoked again with my cousin who I mentioned earlier in, in Minnesota and her uh, brother and sister. And it was, <laughs> it was pretty fun. We like laughed and laughed. I remember we went, uh, we smoked and then we went back to her house and just her aunt was there and we ate pizza and we were all laughing so hard that, like, we were probably spilling pizza all over our shirts, and the aunt, who was pretty clueless, was just kept being like, what's wrong with you guys? But didn't really understand what was going on. Um, so after that, um, you know, I just didn't really know how to get that much pot. But when I did throughout high school, I remember early on in high school, like freshman, maybe sophomore year, my group of friends and I, we would, like, figure out how to buy some, and it'd be a big production of, like, we'd all sleep over at my house and go raid the <laughs> kitchen cabinet, you know, around 8 p.m., and then probably all be asleep an hour or two later. Um, so, you know, I mean, 
maybe this is controversial to say, but I definitely can see the ways that smoking pot uh, kind of saved me at points or at least uh, helped me numb out enough that my day-to-day life wasn't challenging and also a lot of my friend circles were built around drugs and alcohol, at least in high school. Um, and I definitely did get to the point where I was kind of at risk. Um, I also struggled with an eating disorder in, in high school, which I think really was about me trying to control my surroundings after a lot of uncontrollable things happening to me that felt hard and scary. Um, but my parents were, were really worried about me, and I'm very lucky to have parents that were paying attention and doing the best they could, even though I was the oldest of two, and they didn't quite know what to do with me for a while. They had me see a counselor, um, and that counselor suggested that I start being drug tested and that that would help them be able to trust me more but also know when I had broken their trust. So I have to say that was another <laughs> weird thing because there would be instances where maybe I came home drunk or my mom found a pipe in my room or in the house and uh, then it'd be like, well, we're going to go get you drug tested <laughs> instead of just trying to have a conversation with me about what was going on. And I was always, like, taking, you know, this or that to clear my system. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Um, uh, But by my senior year, the agreement was that I could, if I filled it with marijuana, it was okay. Because I had found uh, some marijuana in my parents' bathroom. And I had also uh, loosed out that my dad had smoked and we were on a family vacation to California, so, you know, I pulled some dramatic, like, you guys are hypocrites argument, and my mom was like, fine, well, if you fail with pot, it's not a big deal, but anything else, and that's when you're in trouble. So I guess that was part of the family culture of normalizing marijuana and saying, well, that's not a big deal, it's the other stuff we're worried about. Um, so then I, you know, was, when I was a sophomore in high school, just backtracking a little bit, my mom took me on a on a like long weekend trip to San Francisco, and you know I had been really depressed at the time and was kind of giving up hope in life and telling saying things like you know I don't want to go to college, I don't care about school, which is really the first time I had, had been that apathetic. I'd always been a good student, so she took me to um, San Francisco and she was like, and I loved it. We like stayed on Haight Ashbury and went thrift store shopping and I was just like in heaven and she's like you the way you're going to get out of South Dakota is by going to college so that kind of got me back into a mindset of like working towards getting the heck out of Sioux Falls which was not a very inspiring place for me I really did feel isolated and kind of uninspired there so I I did get my grades up and worked hard and was able to get into uh, University of California at Santa Cruz, um, which even though I got into a couple other schools that might have been better academically, it was really for me. I just like went and visited Santa Cruz and everyone seemed so happy. It's like in the redwoods by the ocean. So it was like after living in the plains for many years, I was like, this is what my heart needs. Um, and that was one of at least two major transitions I can think of where I was kind of ready to stop smoking. I felt just like 
kind of open to getting to know people in other ways and, um, you know, just felt like a much happier person after leaving Sioux Falls, but it was such a big part of the, the culture at the college I went to and it was also the first time I had been exposed to like really good pot because most of the pot in uh, Sioux Falls is not so great, <laughs> brown and seedy. So I did continue to smoke and it did uh, continue to really uh, dictate who I hung out with. Um, and I don't think, it was probably not till maybe my sophomore year of college that I maybe started to realize that it, I mean, I remember in high school just being really scattered and like losing my keys, losing my wallet. You know, I literally left a pipe under my kitchen table at my parents' house once because I just was so stoned. So as someone that now that I've been clean and sober for a year has come to terms with the fact that I probably have some form of ADHD, I think a lot of my smoking throughout most of my, you know, adult and young adult life was on some level to, to try and self-medicate that, but it didn't have a lot had some benefits at a time, but long-term, I don't think it helped that much. Um, but yeah, my roommate, when I lived off campus, my first girlfriend in college, my friends were all pretty heavy pot smokers, and um, we smoked daily, and I remember, you know, I had a 9 a.m. class one semester, a quarter, and we'd get up and take a bong hit and go to class, <laughs> and you know, most of the time it was fine, except for every now and again when it wouldn't be. And I had a friend who didn't smoke that much but lived with all of us say, you know, you're not the best donor because I think I probably wasn't listening to him when he was talking to me. And he's like, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, that's, that's an okay thing to be not that good at. But, um, you know, I continued to do it. And then after I, I graduated from college, I moved to Portland which was another time where I was kind of like ready to stop smoking. And I think I was more aware that it wasn't always a helpful thing. Uh, but again, the people I moved in with smoked and I also like didn't have a job. I was kind of going through a bit of an identity crisis after graduating. So I continued to smoke. And I think that was probably the first time it became clear that, yeah, like I said, it wasn't always a good thing for me. Um, it was also around that time that I smoked with my parents for the first time because they kind of followed my aunt's lead of not smoking with, you know, my aunt was always really open about smoking, but she wouldn't smoke with you till you were 18. So I guess by then I was over 21. But, um, yeah, so then we smoked the first time they came to Portland and then they moved back to California Um within a couple of years of me living in Portland. And after that, since it was legal in California, at least medically then, uh, especially when they moved to a specific house in Southern California, smoking with them or at their house became the norm. And it was so weird because, you know, after I moved out, my brother, who's three years younger than me, my mom used to joke that uh, if you did, like, a cross-section of our house, you would see my brother smoking in the bathroom in the basement and my dad smoking in the bathroom of their room in the second floor. And, you know, it was always this real secretive thing, and it still is to this day, and I've talked about this on the line before, but, like, you know, now that when when I go home to my parents' house, like, it's not like we all smoke a joint together and talk and connect. It's like there's a 
bin in the bathroom that my dad smokes from most of the day, and I, you know, so then, like, going to the bathroom becomes this, like, willpower struggle because I could just take out the the bin and, and smoke. There's probably going to be pot in the pipe, and um, so it's still this real secretive thing, even though we all do it or know about it, um, and I do think that, you know, especially as my youth uh became more and more of a challenge for me. It was kind of this pattern of like having the secret or this way, this thing I was keeping from people or that was keeping me uh, from people. And, you know, I did take one longer break from smoking pot sometime in my 20s. And then I uh, visited my family and smoked with my brother. And it really felt like smoking kind of uh, sent me on this like, spiritual awakening of sorts or I just realized I had been really depressed for a while and, and really appreciated how much smoking pot kind of made me feel lighter but on the other hand it wasn't really based in reality because I was like I'm going to move to Southern California and go to art school and it was like I don't really have an arts background I already have a bachelor in something like I don't can't actually afford to go to art school unless I have a plan of what I'm going to do with it so um so yeah, after that reawakening of smoking pot, I you know continued to smoke, even though I was, a, I guess that one would say a high functioning stoner. I managed to get in and go to grad school for teaching while I was smoking. I again kind of wanted to quit when I started grad school, but again found myself with friends who smoked, and that ended up being a big part of my grad school experience. Um, and you know throughout my late 20s, I would, like, give my roommate my pot if I felt like I was trying to take a break and having a hard time doing it and was able to take breaks sometimes, not that I always stuck with it. Um, And basically, you know, I turned 30 in 2012, uh, met the person who is now my wife and uh, committed to teaching two years in Ecuador after getting my teaching license. Not in that order. I committed to moving to Ecuador, met my now wife, and then moved four months after we met each other. And my first year in Ecuador was great. I had a lot of friends. I lived close in. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but I definitely was having a good time. I wasn't smoking pot that much. Um, But then the second year I was there, I moved with an acquaintance kind of on the outskirts of the city and uh, felt really isolated in that uh, area of town because uh, Ecuador, the city I was living in is a place where as a single woman, you're not really recommended to go out at night on your own or sometimes even take a taxi on your own. So I went from like kind of having the safety net of friends close by to just being on my own a lot of time in this kind of suburban outskirt. And it, it really affected me. And I just remember I would come home from school and I would get high, and I would look out at this, I had this beautiful view of, of this beautiful city, but I just felt like Rapunzel or something, like, I couldn't do anything with this. I was just, like, watching it from my tower, but I, I, I couldn't really get out, and my roommate was only there part-time. And, yeah, that's when I'd say that my youth went from, like, this thing that maybe sometimes felt like an issue but overall wasn't navigating my life to like just every day of coming home smoking even though I knew it wasn't going to be a good thing for me it wasn't shifting my mindset it was actually making me feel worse 
It wasn't really helping me get motivated to do something about my situation, which clearly wasn't working for me. Um, and it just was like this whole year of being in that loop. And it also really affected my relationship with my roommate because I never talked to him about it. You know, we were both in our early 30s. He worked for a nonprofit, and I think I was nervous that if I told him I smoked pot, he'd say, hey, do you actually mind not smoking in the house because, you know, I work for the government or whatever, you know. But instead of having an adult-to-adult conversation with him about it, I just would be sneaky, quote-unquote, and smoke in my room and then come out. And I could tell once in a while he either smelled it or could tell I was high and just kind of looked at me like, really? (laughs) You know, like, okay. And, it, you know, it's like one of those things where that wasn't the only thing I kept from him. And, you know, I know I was depressed. I, like, really missed my girlfriend. I kind of wanted just to go home to Portland, but I had a whole other year of living in this foreign country and kind of struggling through it. But I had this image in my head that I would get back to Portland and everything would be great. Like, I'd just feel, like, confident like I had before I left and connected to my community and then just have this awesome bonus of having a great partner and a teaching license. So I was like, cool, I'll move back to Portland. Everything will be great. This whole seeming addiction to marijuana will disappear, and it will just be a hard phase of life that will be over. Um, which, you know, looking back on it, I do have regrets that I, I wasn't more present that second year and wasn't more able to enjoy that particular time in my life because I don't know if I'll ever get to live abroad again. But overall, you know, I'm not beating myself up about it. But... Uh, Actually, I moved back to Portland, and it wasn't all roses and hugs. It was actually really hard. Moving in with Gina, my partner, was hard. I started a teaching job at a charter school, which was really hard and super stressful. And pretty much from the first day I set foot into that school to see my classroom, I was smoking every day after work. And any day I had off, I would probably smoke around the time that I had my morning coffee. And... uh I was at that job for three years, and in the first two years, I was really, yeah, my marijuana use was really out of control. I really wanted to quit. My partner was seeing firsthand kind of that vicious cycle I was in of, you know, I'd smoke after work, and then as soon as I'd be high, I'd be like, okay, well, this is my plan to quit. I'm going to quit after Tuesday or Wednesday or next month or whatever, after before this or after that, and it, then I'd, you know, go through the next day, at some point in the day, something would trigger craving, like, and then I would go home and smoke, and it was just really, it just felt like such a clear way that I was uh, self-sabotaging myself, and also just really stuck in this really painful loop that no one around me, except for probably my partner, really knew about, and, you know, after turning 30 and moving to Ecuador and kind of feeling like, I got this life figured out, and then being in Portland, you know, 34 and being like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I hate my job. My relationship is struggling. I'm crying every day. I'm smoking every day and I can't stop. Um, and there were a couple incidents, you know, that felt really scary in terms of, you know, obviously I kept my job the whole time I was smoking and I never went to work high. But there was one time where I realized that there were some weed gummies in my pocket from going to a New Year's Eve party and you know I taught elementary school at the time I was like what if a kid had some I was like that could have been awful and there was another day 
where uh, I had like an essential oil diffuser in my classroom and I just put lavender in it. But my principal came in and she's like, whatever you put in that reeks, it smells like weed. And I'm like, oh shit, did I accidentally put like weed oil in the diffuser? Which I didn't. I think the essential oil had just like gone rancid or something. But it was just like this real, like I felt like I was teetering on like someone at the school has got to know that I'm like, recovering from getting stoned every day and I just you know like just the the theme of my self-esteem really struggling continued at that school I felt like a half step away from my principal coming in and telling me I should leave even though in hindsight I did a a perfectly fine job there I think I would have done a better job there if I hadn't been smoking so much pot but um that continued, and even though things were hard with my partner, we started to have a conversation about me trying to get pregnant. Um, so then we did start trying to get pregnant, which is another <laughs> story of how that happened since we're two women. But we did, uh, I did get pregnant, and I found out I was pregnant around my birthday, so October of 2016. Um, and I was still smoking at the time and uh, still smoked a little bit after finding out I was pregnant. I don't think it had really sunk in yet, um, but I could tell my partner was getting more and more concerned if I were to continue to smoke, um, and I kind of told myself, okay, well, it's nine months of not smoking for, a con- like, getting to be a parent and have a healthy kid that I know I didn't, you know, contribute to challenging their brain or physical development, so I was like, okay, I can do it. Um even though I did smoke one, a few other times throughout my pregnancy, um, and it gave me much more sympathy for my mom, who I had always been really hard on for smoking and drinking and doing other things while she was pregnant with me. I just thought once I would get pregnant, I would just know that it was the right thing to do to stop, which, again, I mostly did, but I definitely smoked a few times, and I hadn't really thought about what would happen um, when I started breastfeeding, I had just been like nine months, nine months. You can do it for nine months. And then I had my beautiful daughter and um, didn't smoke for a month because I had a new job and then I knew they were going to drug test me. So that was a good buffer. Um, but then after that month, I did start smoking uh, again, even though I was breastfeeding her. And it was it was a struggle. I wasn't smoking that much, but it was like the rare moment Anytime she would, like, fall asleep, not on me, which happens a lot, but, like, in a cradle or carrier or something, and I might have this, like, moment of free time, I would most likely go smoke. But then inevitably she would wake up, like, 20 minutes later, right when I was realizing that I was stoned, and then I'd feel really weird because I'm, like, in charge of this newborn and, like, in an altered state, and so then I'd kind of feel awkward around her, like I was hiding something or worried that she was, like, getting a contact high from being around me, and then worried I was transferring it through my breast milk, Um, and, you know, I would, like, Google breastfeeding or smoking pot while breastfeeding, and, you know, it's, like, basically, like, yeah, just don't do it, and I was, like, mentally, I know I just shouldn't do it, like, why is this so hard, but I just, I couldn't stop, and uh, a traumatic event happened at the school I was teaching at last December, um, and after that, we went on vacation, and I saw my family on the East Coast, and, and after that trip, I was kind of smoking every day, which felt 
like a real red flag considering I was still breastfeeding and um, clearly using it to cope with my feelings and check out um, and disassociate as much as I could as a new parent. Um, But I started listening to podcasts which were kind of a saving grace in uh, my early parenthood because it was this way to like hear people talk and engage with people even though I was spending a lot of time like lying down with the baby, breastfeeding, you know, not hanging out with friends. And someone on the podcast I listened to mentioned being in recovery for marijuana. And I think the person said that she was in AA, but her drug of choice or her drug of that she was addicted to was marijuana. And that kind of sparked something in me like, oh, there's like this whole structure and program clearly like, I'm not able to just do it on my own, even though I've had periods of not smoking. Like, I think the fact that even, like, as a breastfeeding mom, I was struggling was, like, a real sign to me that I needed some form of help. And uh, I don't quite know how I discovered the MA phone lines. I'm sure, again, it was just some sort of Google search. Um, But I called into my first meeting on February 3rd of last year, and... Uh, after that, I after that first meeting, I I haven't smoked since then, uh, and I think it was just real quickly, real eye-opening to me that the folks I was hearing from on the phone lines shared my same struggle, and I think all the downplaying and kind of internalizing it I had done for all those years, at least since I moved to Ecuador and really realized that I had a, an addiction to it and that it was affecting my relationships. Uh, I just all of a sudden felt accountable to this group of people, even though I had maybe had introduced myself, but obviously hadn't really reached out to anyone yet. And I've heard people say, you know, that the higher power for people, at least in early, early recovery, can be the fellowship. And I think that was really true for me. It was just like, you know, it's like, I'll call into a meeting. I don't know if I'm going to, like, if what folks are saying is going to resonate with me. I don't know if this whole 12-step thing is something I'd be interested in or, you know, maybe I had some idea of what it would look like or be like from how it's presented in, in the world or in, you know, like TV shows or whatever. But, yeah, like I said, I just immediately, you know, podcasts were a cool way to connect with people as an isolated new parent and then calling into these meetings has just been like a huge contradiction to the isolation I felt as a new parent and just in the last 10 years or so of my life since I, like I said, since I moved to Ecuador. Um, So, you know, I would call in pretty regularly in those first couple months. I'd say the days I worked every other day, essentially, and the days I was home with my daughter, anytime she was napping or somewhat self-occupied, I would call in, and, and that really kept me going, although I knew eventually I would have to kind of take the next step and, and find a sponsor and start working the steps. Um, so, And I still was drinking a little bit for those first few months, and then I did find a sponsor around April of of last year and she was real clear that she wouldn't work with me if I was drinking um, so I stopped drinking in April and um, that has been really enlightening for me I don't think I have an, I don't have an issue with alcohol as far as I know but I definitely have an issue with 
codependency in my relationships, and it's been really uh, eye-opening to me to see how how much of my drinking was kind of to match uh, the people I was around, um, whether it's my friends or, or my partner who does drink and smoke. Um, so, yeah, like I said, I haven't drank since April. I haven't smoked since last February. And with that sponsor, I started working the steps. And since I had been uh, free of marijuana for about three months at that time, I was really, like, rearing to work through the first three steps. And I, I kind of went through them, and then I got to the fourth step and was, like, deer in headlights, screeching halt, like, oh, this, this is a lot of work versus, like, I'm going to define these words and write about my early marijuana use. So I, I kind of hit a standstill last summer with step four. And then through a series of events, uh, I had to find a new sponsor in the fall. And that actually ended up really working out for me because I kind of reworked the steps with my new sponsor and kind of reread what I had written and thought about the things a little bit more. So I am still on step four. I'm like kind of slowly turning it over with my sponsor and working my way through it. Um, and you know, I think some of the imposter syndrome feelings I was having before I called into this meeting is that, you know, I'm a I'm a new, still a new mom, although my daughter's 20 months now. She's not a newborn, and I do, you know, teach half time, and I have a wife, and you know, a lot of things I'm juggling. So I I definitely try to put my recovery first, but on the days that I work and then go pick up my daughter and come home and make dinner and then you know get I. I don't always feel like I can call into a meeting. Um, I think what I realized at a certain point, even though early on in recovery, I just need to call in whenever I thought of it, whenever a meeting was happening, I just was going to call in because it kept me sober. It was like that's the amount of time I was, pro- I was probably having cravings at least two to three times a day. And so calling in was the way to curb that. So I just did it whenever I needed to. And now that, thank God, I'm kind of free of those cravings for the most part, or I feel like I'm able to, uh, you know, kind of hang in there through them, whereas, you know, when I was using, even the days where I said I wasn't going to smoke, it's just the thought or a smell or someone talked about it, it was on a TV show, like, that's all it took, I caved in, whereas now I'm just, like, aware of the bigger picture of what I would like for myself and the benefits of being free of marijuana for probably the longest amount of time since I was a young you know, in 13 or 14 years old, um, I'm able to kind of work through those cravings. Um, but um, I do feel like a lot of recovery is being patient with my own process and not comparing myself to people who maybe seem to be working the steps faster than me or sharing meetings. Maybe I should be sharing meetings. Maybe I should be doing this. I live in a place where there's definitely in-person meetings, and I would love to make it to at least one once a week or once a month, but it's just been uh, challenging with my partner's work schedule and juggling childcare. We don't have family nearby, so it's basically on us to, to figure that out, and so these phone meetings are such a godsend because I can be making dinner or my daughter can be napping and I can call in and I, I do feel really connected to people. I would like to say that um, I hope to feel more connected with people. I I think that although the phone lines are, like I said, you know, what's kept me sober for the last year plus, 
it also can be easy for me not to reach out to people because I'm not right in front of them, and I, it does sometimes feed into my pattern. So I, I, I just want to use this time to say that I, I do really want to feel connected to all of you and, and make an effort to reach out more. Um, but just, you know, I'm so, so grateful for these phone lines, for my sponsors, for the structure of the steps, because I am really someone who needs to be held accountable. And like I said, an early recovery, the, the fellowship definitely was enough to to keep me accountable, um, but I knew eventually I was going to have to find a sponsor and work the steps. And then, you know, I can see how taking on a, a role of service or leadership within the community also helps. Like, I just went on the trip to visit the aunt I was speaking of earlier, who's a, a regular pop smoker, and I was nervous about going, and it I thought it was really strategic of me to commit to doing the speaker meeting after the trip was over because I, in my head, was like, well, if I am tempted, I, I know I can't smoke because I've committed to doing this and I would have to, like, let a bunch of people down or at least call one person and tell her why I couldn't do the meeting. And in the end, uh, seeing my aunt wasn't, it didn't actually make me want to smoke because I can see how it maybe affected her brain after smoking for 30 more years than I have at this point, and uh, I'm actually really grateful <laughs> to not be in that state and to find ways to connect with her in other ways besides sharing a joint or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in, in wrapping things up a bit, I mean, I'd say the biggest things that keep me from smoking today and the biggest benefits I see from MA and, and from the the 12-step program is my developing relationship with my higher power. I didn't grow up in a religious household, and I think um, I've really been craving a more of a spiritual awakening, especially as it sometimes feels like our world is a really scary and uncertain place currently, and I would not trade that budding connection I have with my own intuition and with something bigger than myself for a you know, one to two hour relief from feeling the weight of the world on my shoulders, as well as like the sense of community and accountability, which I mentioned before, just being so much more self-aware. I mentioned earlier that smoking pot was just like my biggest way of being in my own way and my biggest issue I struggled with. And now that that's out of the picture for now, I'm much more aware of my other character defects and issues instead of just only always focusing on how I want to stop smoking pot that I can't. Um, I feel more connected instead of isolated, although I'm definitely still working through that. Um, I love the idea of one day at a time and doing the next right thing as someone that's always trying to think ahead, like 50 things, like trying to slow down enough to remember that is huge. Um, and connecting my relationship my higher power with my mindfulness practice and trying to meditate and pray, pray regularly. Um, and I just love the structure of these meetings of getting to hear people's stories and the different topics that are suggested and how they kind of create, you know, a unique sharing, even if it's people I've heard before, it's them sharing in different ways. And as a, a writer, I just think it's so cool. Um, and it, the power of listening to each other and what an important role of service that is um, and the structure of having the steps and the sponsors. It's just all so awesome. Such a cool, wonderful tool. And 
yeah, to the newcomers, I just say, just keep calling in, hang in there. I, in some ways, they'll feel like a newcomer myself, but you do really have to have a lot of patience with yourself as well as accountability. And I think that the fellowship really provides a lot of love and acceptance as well as uh, keeping me on track. And yeah, really excited and curious to see what the next year of recovery brings and beyond. And um, thanks again, everyone, for being here. And thanks, Amy, for chairing the meeting. And I think 